Welcome to GW Central Asia Program podcast series. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, good evening, depending where you are. Uh, welcome to this uh, Central Asia Program online seminar at the George Washington University. We are delighted today to have this double book launch celebrating two uh, really fascinating books, one by Daniel Smarkey, China's Western Horizon, Beijing and the New Geopolitics of Eurasia, and Tim Winter's latest book, Geopolitical Power, Geocultural, sorry, Power, China's Quest to Revive the Silk Road for the 21st Century. It's a great testament on how many good research is going on China foreign policy and the global issues of Silk Road and especially the relationship to Central Asia, which is dear to us here at the Central Asia uh, program. Let me just say also that this event is co-organized, co-sponsored with the George W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China relations. The the foundation seeks to advance U.S.-China relations in a way that reflects the ethos, spirit, and values of President uh, George W. Bush, and we are really delighted to do this event jointly. Let me briefly present our uh, speakers today. We will first hear from Daniel Markey. You can see their bios on on our flyer, so I won't read them entirely. Daniel is a senior research professor and academic director at SAIS at Johns Hopkins, and he has been publishing extensively on uh, South Asia and on China. We then hear from Tim Winter, who is an Australian research professor and fellow at the University of Western Australia and a fellow at the Australian Academy of the Humanities and who has been also publishing several books on the Silk Road. And then we are delighted to have as a discussant for today, uh, Roger Baker, who is Senior Vice President for Strategic Analysis for Stratfor and also a Senior Fellow at the George W. Bush Foundation for US-China Relations. And the the real organizer of this event, that will be also our moderator, research professor with us at the Central Asia Program, and also a senior fellow uh, at the George W. Bush Foundation. And Sebastian will be uh, running the the, the Q&A session. Once again, welcome everybody. We are delighted to have you here uh, today, and congratulations for these really wonderful books. So let me give the floor to our two speakers for kind of short introduction, and then we'll give the floor to Roger for some comments, and then Sebastian will be taking over. Thank you, and welcome everybody. Daniel, I give you the floor. Great, Marlene, thank you. And Sebastian and all of the other organizers, I really appreciate this opportunity, and I'm looking forward to the conversation with my fellow panelists, Tim, who joins us from very far away, and Roger from less far away, but uh, that's the delight of this format. So I've been asked to, to speak about China's Western horizon, and I'll do so in about 15 minutes or so, and I hope not to go much longer than that. What I want to do is I want to lay out in that time the main themes of the book, and of course, we'll have an opportunity to go uh, into greater depth later. So as I see it, the book has four main aims. Uh, The first of these uh, is to consider China's aims and activities in this region of continental Eurasia, which I define in the book as including South Asia, that is uh, India, Pakistan, and the rest, Central Asia, where I focus principally on Kazakhstan, but also veer into relations with Russia as well, and the Middle East, which includes principally Iran in this book, but I also focus on Saudi Arabia and the rest of that region to a lesser extent. 
So what are Chinese aims in this region is the first aim. The second of the book's four aims is to better understand the interests and the agendas, the aspirations of the Eurasian states themselves with respect to China. So to flip things upside down, rather than asking what is China up to, ask what these states are up to. The third aim is to assess the push and the pull of Chinese influence and these regional aims and see how they add up. And then to take that from the perspective both of the region and also to look at it from the perspective of the United States, of course, sitting in Washington, DC, that's how uh, my perspective is shaped. And then finally, the book considers broad strategic options for how the United States might respond uh, to, to these factors in continental Eurasia. Now, if I were to put my finger on what I hope to be the book's most important and even original contribution, it really comes with this focus on the uh, issue of how Eurasian states themselves matter. They're what we might call agency to this process, the extent to which they are actually driving regional dynamics more so even than, say, China's interests or influence. And not only do are they shaped by China, but how they shape what China uh, is able to do in the region. And uh, in some instances, including in the book, I sometimes describe this by thinking about the region like a coastline with Chinese power and influence as the rushing waters that are coming and greeting that coastline. And with that rising tide of Chinese power, we can imagine that in some instances, the water reaches and hits up against a jagged shore and uh, is pushed back. Uh, while in other instances, there are more welcoming inlets for Chinese power and influence. Now, this version of things is not entirely correct. And I wanna be clear about this because it would be really incomplete to say that Eurasian states set the scene or merely set the scene for Chinese action because they are also, as I try to lay out in this book, attempting to turn Chinese power and resources to their own purposes. And even when these purposes may have little or nothing to do with what China itself might like in the region. And this is a really important part of that story. Now, it's a complicated story. This is an enormous region and a, an extremely diverse region. So I make no attempt in the book to be um, encyclopedic about what I am doing. Instead, and I don't try to show how every state in the region from Nepal and Bangladesh to smaller states in, in the Middle East are responding. Instead, I focus on several, what I consider to be core actors in the region. And principally, I focus on Pakistan, on Kazakhstan, and on Iran as the centerpiece of my story. And I do this in part because these are countries that, are, that have importance in and of themselves in terms of their economic or military or regional power, but also because they are considered important by Beijing, or at least relatively important. Second, I try to ask and answer the questions that I pose in this book in a relatively systematic way across several cases. I ask two basic questions for each of the three subregions that I consider. The first question is, what's happening on the home front or domestically, internally, within the core case or state that I'm looking at? So what's happening inside of Pakistan, Kazakhstan, and Iran? That's question one. And how is that changing because of China's greater involvement in that country? 
Question number two is what's happening geopolitically across each of these subregions, and in particular, what's happening in the existing competitions and dynamics, geopolitical competitions that frame these regions. So in South Asia, I look at the relationship between Pakistan and India, which really dominates that region. In Central Asia, I'm looking at Kazakhstan and its relationship to Russia. And in the Middle East, I'm looking at Iran and its relationship with Saudi Arabia and to a lesser extent, the other uh, Gulf states. Bearing in mind time, I want to quickly step through each of these sub-regions in turn, starting with South Asia, which really is the area which has occupied most of my thinking and time and research over the past decade or more, and especially Pakistan, which was the subject of my, my previous book. Now, what's happening there over the past, say, five to 10 years is that China is increasingly involved in Pakistan. And the kind of the, the headline uh, of that involvement is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor announced in 2015, which is basically and frequently described as uh, a critically important component of China's broader Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI, which I'm sure most, if not all of you are familiar with, a global agenda, which centers in many ways on infrastructure investment in a variety of areas across a large swath of the world. So the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, or CPEC, as it is often described, is having, as I explain in the book, a mixed effect on the domestic political economy. So what do I mean by that? I mean that in some ways it's really helping Pakistan and it is serving deep Pakistani economic needs that have been poorly addressed either by its own government or by other external investors. And we can see this in the energy sector, which was the early area where China initially has focused on building power plants and trying to address a longstanding challenge, blackouts and brownouts that has harmed Pakistan's industry over many years. So in some areas, we see uh, positive consequences of China's greater involvement with CPEC. But in other areas, what we see, particularly in the political environment, are countervailing negative consequences. We see the exacerbation uh, of existing political cleavages, and particularly ethnic cleavages, provincial cleavages that already exist between often the haves and the have-nots, those who stand to benefit from greater Chinese investment and those who stand to benefit less or not at all, or even lose. And I open the book with the story of Gwadar Port along the Arabian Sea coast, because there is an instance where one might imagine that a new seaport, a deep seaport would help local locals, local businesses, the local economy. But in fact, because Chinese workers and other Pakistanis are being brought in to build this, Many of the locals are simply being displaced and see this as actually having a detrimental consequence for their economic prospects going forward. I also see that by, by and large, China's greater involvement in Pakistan contributes to illiberal tendencies of the state, to the greater power of Pakistan's army, which is already the dominant political force in Pakistan, and the lesser or reduced role of Pakistan's civilian politicians in part because China is supporting longstanding military efforts at censorship, at political repression, and so on. So that's the domestic political story. At the same time, I look again at the second level of issues, which is the geopolitical 
dynamic and tensions principally between Pakistan and India. And to simplify, again, a very complicated story, there I see that by China's greater involvement in Pakistan, especially its military to military ties, its support of the Pakistan's military financially, but also with arms transfers, a provision of a variety of technologies and so on, including nuclear technology, historically extensive uh, involvement in Pakistan's uh, missile uh, program, what we see is the potential for what you might describe as an emboldened Pakistan. Pakistan that is greater or more willing to take on risks with respect to its principal rival in the region, that is India, and which India perceives as more threatening. And what we have seen over the past five years or so is quite worrisome in this respect, because India's response in this dynamic is to see Pakistan as more threatening, to see Pakistan as having China's backing. And that has led not just to a series of heightened India-Pakistan tensions, uh, which have spilled over in a variety of worrisome ways, but also to heightened China-India tensions. And so the net total consequence of China's involvement in the region thus far has been destabilizing, not stabilizing. And we can talk more about that. There have been some recent developments, including a ceasefire and other agreements, but by and large, I see this as a destabilizing consequence. Shifting now to Central Asia, here again, a mixed political economy or domestic story in Kazakhstan. Clearly, China's involvement in terms of financial investment, particularly during the financial crisis, 2008-2009, bailed out some of Kazakhstan's elites, leaders, captains of industry, and so on, closely tied to Nazarbayev. It has also created, over time, new opportunities for investment in infrastructure. I had an opportunity for uh, travel to Kazakhstan to go up to, to Horgos, to the dry port, to see some of the efforts there. And there is a, a potential that this could have greater economic development value for Kazakhstan. And yet at the same time, it also, like in Pakistan, has the potential to enrich the already well-off elites and to do relatively little to help the rest of Kazakhstan's population. Moreover, there is, again, somewhat like Pakistan, a mixed public response to China's greater involvement not least because there is a degree of latent Sinophobia in Kazakhstan. And increasingly, uh, there are concerns about China's treatment of ethnic Uyghurs and Kazakhs inside of China that creates tensions politically. And there is also the potential for a challenging politics in Kazakhstan of succession, in which China may find itself embroiled. And so again, on the whole, a mixed political economic story for China's involvement in a place like Kazakhstan. The geopolitical story also has a mixed outcome here, somewhat potentially rosier than what we see in South Asia. But the geopolitics of Central Asia, as I see them, have long been defined mainly by Russia's dominance of the region. And so the key story here to watch is the relative or potential relative erosion of that dominance and the jockeying for leverage of the smaller Central Asian states, the less powerful Asian states, now in the context of a China and Russia involvement in the region. And the question is how China is pursuing these opportunities available to it. And so far, what we've seen is a China willing and able to play the role of the purse, that is the economic supporter for the region. Russia continues to play the role of the gun or the high politics and security provider in the region. 
But over time, uh, I believe that we are likely to see a greater Chinese involvement, even in the harder and uh, militarized politics of the region. Its arms sales and influence are likely to outpace and outgrow Russia's in ways that may limit the opportunities for jockeying among Central Asian states to play one Russia against the other China. And Russia itself faces what I describe as competing timelines. Obviously, Russia under Putin has been focused principally on, on the West, on the United States as its principal challenge and threat. And the question is whether its unrelenting hostility toward the West and its difficult relations with the West will last long enough or will in fact subside rapidly enough so that it will find itself well-placed in some way, in some relative near term, extract itself from an increasingly junior partnership with China. Or on the other hand, whether it will find that it's close growing ties with China as a junior partner will be the dominant story of the future of its relations in Central Asia. And again, a lot here has to do with Russia's decisions and Central Asian decisions. And I wanna reinforce this and not always to do with what China itself is attempting to accomplish in the region. And let me wrap up with Iran, because here what we see is that China's demand for energy principally oil, but also gas, and its desire to sell manufactured goods have been critically important to Iran's regime. So in terms of the domestic political economy, the regime owes a lot of its ability to stay in power to its ability to sell oil and to continue to have solid relations with China. China has also increasingly provided high-tech tools of political repression to this regime an ability to control its internet to enhance its surveillance capabilities. And this, like elsewhere, as I've described, has come at some cost in terms of Iranian public opinion about China. There's a mixed response in Iran, some grumbling and even anger about China's greater involvement in Iran. Geopolitically, going to that second level, China finds itself courted by both Iran and Saudi Arabia, both of them trying to send energy to China. And both of them also trying to use increasingly Chinese weapons and technologies and investment to prop themselves up against one another and to continue their geopolitical competition. And in the case of Iran, to continue its capacity to push back against American pressure. And overall, China finds itself in an opportunistic spot, again, uh, a happy spot for it, but maybe not one it intended, to be able to pick and choose among partners and not have to make difficult choices. So if we wrap all of this up, we see that economically across the region, states are increasingly drawn into a Chinese orbit, but that they still will have uh, some questions about whether China's investment is helpful or harmful. Politically, we see China contributing, I think, to an overarching illiberal trend across an already too illiberal region but this does not necessarily translate into Chinese political domination. And in a military and security sense, we see that China's involvement does not necessarily bring greater stability or peace where it goes. We can imagine a situation where China is more involved in terms of uh, its ability to project military power, but not, does not necessarily bring peace or stability to this wider region and its Western horizon. So let me close there and I look forward to the conversation to follow. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Dan. Wonderful kind of summary of the key points of your book. Let's now give the floor to Tim for his own presentation. Thanks very much. And thank you both to Sebastian and yourself for the invitation to speak to such an esteemed audience and to follow Daniel's fabulous summary of his interesting book, which very much um, complements what I'm going to say. My approach to Belt and Road has been a, a sort of complement to the geopolitical and geoeconomic analysis that's dominated a lot of the think tank and academic analysis of Belt and Road in the last few years, which have understood it as a project of connectivities across space, across multiple sectors. But if we start to read BRI as a geocultural project, we can start to make some connections across time between and as well as space. So in terms of time, the temporal connections, it's between the past and the present. And in particular, the co-opting of the past and of culture for strategic purposes, both home and abroad, whether it's in China or other countries in the region. So the book picks up these themes and, and speaks about uh, the use of the past for political, developmental and diplomatic purposes. It's part of a three-book project, Geocultural Power, came out in 2019. The Silk Road is published next year, early next year, which builds on Chapter 2 of Geocultural Power, which extends the analysis of the Silk Road and as a modern concept of internationalist histories, both within popular culture, institutional relations, and international affairs, and where that I think that's heading in the future. And then the third book looks across Eurasia more broadly at the ways in which history and invented traditions, invented pasts are being used and being deployed today in the, in the rise of the stational state within nationalist populist movements across China, India, Russia, Turkey and elsewhere. And so this is a project, what I'm trying to do is contribute to um, a movement that's moving, an attempt to move us beyond some of these, what have become somewhat tired and concepts for understanding the relationship between culture, history, religion, and international affairs. Marlene published a really interesting recent article saying that we need to dispense with the clash of civilizations discourse, and I agree with that. But I also think soft power doesn't account for the complexities of what's happening today. So I think these publications are an attempt to try and move beyond these, these prevailing ideas of the relationship between culture and uh, other political dimensions of international affairs today. Now, to give you a sense of what I'm trying to get at in that space, I take you back to actually to Palestine and the Middle East in, in the beginning of the 20th century. As you see from this map, this is a, a map of the Ottoman Empire at that time fading. There's a, the Suez Canal, the emergence of railway infrastructure. But what that map doesn't show is also the birth of Zionism at that time. But when we add in these dots, you start to see the search for antiquities that was being driven by a number of countries. And through scholarship in the last few years, we've come to understand the role of archaeology, sites and artifacts, and as well as manuscripts, in the role of empire building uh, a number of European countries, but also in the Zionist cause for establishing a homeland. So the Palestine, Palestine Exploration Fund that you see there that had links to the British Army and the role of surveying that land which became Palestine, and the creation of a nation and forms of nationalism that was spatial, territorial and historically constituted. Now, if we roll forward to, post, to the post-World War I era, we see the political landscape of the regions obviously changed. But because this was also the Holy Land and the history of the region and the narratives that were built around the past also spoke to debates about Western civilization. As Spengler publishes his book, The Decline of the West in 1918 on that theme. And subsequent scholarship in later decades of the 20th century understood the 
the role of forging of foundational histories that were essential to the creation of nascent ethno-religious nationalisms in this region, but also the imperial nationalisms of Europe at that time. So antiquities of the Near East were excavated, studied and exhibited as the roots of post-Enlightenment Europe. So history also became a key actor in this in theater of imperial struggle. So through works of uh, Said and others and much scholarship since then, we now understand how this, the role of history was enmeshed in debates about East and West and imperialist epistemologies of the Orient. Now, this is a body of work that has extended outwards from that region across Southeast and South Asia. And it's a, it's a body of scholarship that now shows us the complex entanglements between geopolitics, between infrastructure and the forging of historical narratives in the building of empires and nations. And for various reasons, I think, these connections are not being made so well for interpreting what is happening today and the events of today. So I'm, what I'm suggesting that this is far more than a question of just soft power. And we need to think about how the 19th century can offer us some insights to understanding what's happening and playing out today across these regions. Now, if we look at the Silk Road as a narrative of history, it's a somewhat fascinating and enigmatic narrative of history. So in the book, the geocultural refers to this, what I've called a geocultural imaginary of the Eurasian past, that is the Silk Road. And it's been built around themes of connectivity, transmission and dialogue. It's a highly romanticized depiction of 2000 years of history. It's neither a national history, it's not imperial, nor is it global. As many of you will be familiar, it was a term uh, invented in the 1870s through Fernand von Richthofen's publication, 1877 book, China. But this didn't mean to say that it entered scholarship at that period. That happens somewhat later. Now, the, the Silk Road artifacts, manuscripts and sites and archaeological sites that are published that form the body of publications today relates to the collecting of antiquities that happened at the end of the 19th century, both within Europe, uh, Russia and in Japan. So the Silk Road in Japan takes on a pan-Asianist uh, movement to it, momentum to it through the 20th century. And of course, this was playing out in the great game. Um, of that period through Central Asia. And uh, so in that map, I would suggest there's some parallels to what we're seeing play out today. So this is part of the themes I trace in the book and the very different political environments of that period that allow this transcontinental, transcultural history to emerge rather than something in the Middle East or in the South Asia during that period. <clears throat> However, the Silk Road doesn't enter public consciousness in Europe until the 1930s, as you see from this graph. And through the Cold War, it's only really picked up in Japan and it starts its pathway towards global fame during the 1980s. And that's primarily because of the end of the Cold War and a new language of East and West that was required. So in 1988, UNESCO launches a Silk Roads in Dialogue project, which ends up lasting around a decade which involves multiple conferences, publications, workshops, scholarly reports, so on and so forth, but also a number of expeditions, both overland and, and maritime. So the maritime Silk Road voyage happens in 1991. So what you can see from this map is that the Silk Road has dramatically expanded from a depiction of uh, silk trade between Han Dynasty uh, China and the Roman Empire in the two centuries either side of the birth, either, either side of, the birth of Christ. So this is also the moment where we see the maritime Silk Road enter international cultural policy. And here's a, uh, an event many of you in Washington might be familiar with. This dates back to 2002, where the Silk Road becomes a uh, part of the Smithsonian Institutes on the Washington Mall in the, in the wake of 9-11. So what we see in the 1990s and early 2000s 
It's a Silk Road emerge with a number of values and ideals that are attached to it. This is what I'm summarizing here. It, comes, it becomes a history of internationalism and associated with ideas and the themes of cross-cultural dialogue, peace and international cooperation, the dialogue between civilizations. It's a narrative of cosmopolitanism and the cosmopolitan travelers such as Ivan Batuta, Marco Polo, and a number of travelers in China. It's also a story of East and West in dialogue and a peaceful interpolity relations. And for this reason, it, it ends up being picked up during this late 20th century period by a series of institutions and publishers. It becomes a genre of uh, sort of coffee table publishing. And of course, as many of you will be familiar with, it also becomes a term for foreign policy for a number of countries in Central Asia, East Asia, as well as the United States. And it's all these different themes, these ideas and these narratives of the Silk Road that come together in the Belt and Road Initiative, both in terms of future making, ideas of foreign policy, infrastructure, connectivities, but also this um, depiction of a Eurasia that's um, steeped in a deep history of benign connectivity and, and friendship and tolerance and trust and harmonious relations. So what I've argued in the book is this narrative of the Silk Road is doing a lot of uh, political work in terms of China itself. We've seen uh, a whole series of cultural infrastructure being built across the country that are celebrating the great pasts of the country. And the Silk Road stands front and center in this today, such as in cities in Xi'an. And I would suggest there's some interesting parallels there that we might draw with 19th century Europe and the role of public architecture and the grand museums of that period, which were very much civic projects and in the, in the construction and the citizens of empire. These were being built to legitimize the ambitions of the states in that region at that time and forging narratives of power for the imperial nation. So that raises interesting questions of how we read what is happening in China around this use of history and heritage as a national project. It's been an extraordinary project of 4,000 or more museums built in the last seven years and massive investments in new cultural infrastructure and the preserving of cultural heritage across the country. And the Silk Road, advances certain ideas and themes about Chinese histories within this, that the country is successful when it's open, that it's confident in, its, in dialogue with others, and that prosperity comes from open borders. But I, what I also show in the book, the services as a platform of shared values for building alliances across the region. And that's also um, somewhat parallel today in the Indo-Pacific as a values-based discourse of cooperation and the quad that we've seen emerge in the, in the last few years. But with Belt and Road, we're seeing this because of the global fame and the popularity of the Silk Road and its benign circulation in popular culture and in, and in the space of international cooperation. The Silk Road is being picked up by a whole series of actors, state and non-state, across a whole series of countries. And that's a picture from or a slide from the website, silkroadfutures.net, that kind of traces some of these institutional connections that's been forged in the last few years. It's also become a platform for uh, cultural sector aid and cooperation. So I take you back to the domain of archeology. span And this time I'll give you a few examples from the Maritime Silk Road. So then what we're seeing is a search for the histories of connectivity as a basis for friendship claims that stretch back centuries. So it's suggesting that Sri Lanka and China in this case were friendships on the Maritime Silk Road. And you might ask when was the Maritime Silk Road is a post-Cold War invention or does it stretch back 600 or 700 years as certain scholars are arguing today? and rewriting this history in certain ways and, and depoliticizing these histories and removing episodes of invasion, conflict and bloodshed for benign histories of friendship and, and connectivity. But of course, today, this, this sector speaks to more than just archeology. 
It's becoming a cooperation platform across multiple sectors. So here are examples from Malaysia, where the Maritime Silk Road history and narrative is being used as a, a vehicle for all sorts of forms of development, primarily around tourism and investments around making uh, cities attractive for different forms of population that might be migrating to those regions in Southeast Asia. And then when we step back uh, further, we see that this is happening on an extra, quite an extraordinary scale. So, so what I think is particularly interesting is the ways in which Asia st- is moving towards its maritime history. And in the last two days, the Indian Council for World Affairs has just run a two-day workshop on developing a maritime consciousness in India today. So this is a, a language that's being picked up across a number of countries in the region. But to come back to the uh, Eurasian continent, what we see here are the 500 or so sites that are being recommended by a number of organizations, primarily those associated with UNESCO, for Silk Road World Heritage nominations. So World Heritage, I'm sure many of you aware, has become a kind of the cultural Olympics or in recent decades, where uh, a huge banner of prestige that countries are vying for to be um, going up the league tables of the number of properties, both cultural and natural sites um, within their regions. But what we've seen in the last few years is how this maps onto the uh, developmental corridors of Belt and Road, um, as you see in this slide, and what that means for these regions and the communities living across this this developmental geography. So in case of Central Asia, I think the real long-term game changer will be the uptake in passenger trains, as well as the the airports that are opening across the region based on the anticipated growth in tourism infrastructures. And what we see in this slide is the convergence between these cultural uh, sites and the tourism infrastructures of both airports and rail networks. And that's, as I say, coming online and I think will continue. And if you look to other regions, whether it's Southeast Asia, there's some particular trends that you could certainly identify there. But because the Silk Road is now being picked up that's as a discourse of connectivity within Belton Road, the stretches right across to the Mediterranean, We're also seeing this happening in countries such as Turkey, Italy and Greece, with a number of universities, for example, in Greece, rewriting Greek history so that Greek is now part of the Silk Road story and connects to China for touristic purposes. So the real big issue here, of course, is the growth in Chinese tourism. Pre-COVID levels were around 140 to 145 million Chinese tourists coming out each year. And the Silk Road is becoming a platform for that outbound tourism market. And I would again suggest there's interesting parallels to European tourism of the 19th century, which very much followed the geographies of empire during that period. But of course, what we've got today are the digital infrastructures of these industries, the payments systems, the international financial structures, the app economies. And I would suggest that these constitute a new form of digital power, suggesting with a number of think tanks uh, from China, suggesting to these smaller countries in the Mediterranean and Central Asia, that you're invisible if you're not on these Chinese-driven ecosystems of tourism and and connectivity. But I'll take you back to this map for my final point, which is um, back to that map of these World Heritage Sites, because this is rapidly emerging again as a platform and a mechanism for transboundary collaborations between various state and non-state actors. And I think, again, we might look at this in the context of surveying, in, in the context of the 19th century, and today, within the Silk Road research and policy, these digital tools are, have their own political and social lives to them. And I would suggest that they afford geocultural epistemologies in the way that cartographies of previous eras haven't. And they also serve as instruments of governance for minority regions or minority border areas. Um, so I think this raises really important questions of what's happening across uh, Central Asia and within China itself today. 
And just finally to wrap up, I would say that part of one of the themes I've really covered in the book and tried to argue is that the Silk Road operates as an ideational concept and as well as an ideological uh, idea. So the Silk Road history and heritage as it's being mobilized becomes a way, a mode of knowing Eurasia across land and across sea. It makes Eurasia familiar for the public, for intellectuals, for, and for institutions within an outward looking internationally ambitious China, as well as for a number of countries across the regions. So the Silk Road as a geocultural imaginary of Eurasia's past becomes also a space of knowledge production across all sorts of institutions. It naturalizes certain ideas about the past in the projection of futures and the construction of imagined communities in those futures and around ideas of connectivity, cooperation, and that the opening of borders now works as a platform of depoliticized cooperation. In that respect, I will leave it there and hand back to um, Sebastian. Thank you so much, Tim, for that presentation. Really fascinating. It's so great to see how the two books are also replying to, to each other. So I now would like to invite our discussion, Roger. Thank you. As Tim mentioned, these books are very complementary in their approach, in the way in which you can look at them and interact with them. We have Daniel's book that focuses very much on the physical and the concrete, on the concepts of what's real in the space, right? Rather than what does China want to do and China will just accomplish everything it wants to achieve, you have to understand the playing field. As uh, W. Gordon East talked about it, the wicket and cricket. You, you've got to know where they're playing and how that's going to be able to shape what happens. And it, it's often, I think, particularly from a U.S. perspective or from an outside perspective, there's frequently a failure to recognize that the local actors are active, they're not merely responsible. So I think that's an important piece. Tim brings out this concept of reinterpretation of history, the way that one can utilize history as a way to justify current patterns and current desires, as a way to try to tamp down some of the realities that Daniel's book brings out. And one of the things that both of these books really highlights to me, when you look at them together and look at some of the other literature and really observe what's going on, is that China is not unique in the sense that China is not some new entity that only operates in a win-win world and everything China wishes to do, they do, and they think in 100-year plans and they have these perfect blocks of future planning, and they're the super strategic thinkers, and the rest of the world are embarrassed by that and, and are the ones left behind. But instead, what we see as China reaches a certain point of economic power, of demographic power, and ultimately now of political and military power, that it pushes against reality all around it. How it manages that reality is perhaps a choice of the way in which China wishes to pursue it, right? Some of this is in this interpretation of history. But I would argue that if you think about some of the references that, that have been made even in this discussion, the West interpreted history in its own unique ways as well to be able to shape its ideas and its designs. You can look at the history of the United States and these ideas of the, the slow movement of enlightenment from east to west, and then the ultimate role of the United States to push further west and push enlightenment back to the east again to where it begins. So those reshaping of the historical concepts, the, the framing concepts of ideology and things of that sort. Really important from a, I, I come at this from a geopolitical perspective, from a classical geopolitical perspective. So the, the first thing that comes into one's mind when they look at Belt and Road is Mackinder's Nightmare. This is the connectivity that 
that Mackinder said technology would allow that would not only unify Eurasia, but would unify the world island, right? One of the things we don't get in this discussion because we're focused mostly on the Eurasia is the further extents. We hint a little bit at it, right? Out into Europe, down into Africa, right? The whole Indian Ocean Basin and combining that area of human resources, natural resources, productive capacity, and building a transportation infrastructure that pulls it, ties it together. This also gets you into the way in which the United States maybe engages with this. Dan's book talks a little bit about this, but one of the challenges for the United States is if the United States is traditionally a maritime power that may be worried about a Eurasian heartland power being able to dominate that space, distance and limited connectivity for the United States. The worst places for the United States to try to lock itself in is in the middle of Central Asia, right? It works best along, as Spikeman called it, the rimland, along that area of contact between the maritime space and between the continental space. And in, in some of this, we see that. You see that the complications in South Asia, in the Middle East. We didn't talk much about Southeast Asia and the maritime space in this discussion, that's perhaps the part that's discussed the most in common parlance because it's the place where people can perceive a maritime United States clearly being pushed by an expansionary China, where in the general perception of, of the general public in America, or even in some sense in Europe, Central Asia is just far away. It's, it's someplace in the middle and it's someplace you don't see. I think the Russian component here is really important as well. The idea of does Russia allow itself ultimately to be a junior partner? Or do we see a cyclical pattern of Russia where when it gets pushed back and consolidates, it pushes back out, it looks back at the Tianxin Mountains and it looks back at these areas of saying, how do you need to reassert itself? The Arctic isn't included in this discussion and that's a new space that creates both opportunity and challenges for Russia in its relationship to China. And we see the Russians reaching out to the Japanese and the Koreans. In the concept of the Silk Road, I think one of the key points that was brought up was the idea that as China re-envisions the Silk Road in its own interpretation, and I like the what Tim brought up on how the initial interpretation of the Silk Road really comes out of European imperial competition. And then we move to a period of post-Cold War. So in that idea of the world is fallible globalization, it's completely reinterpreted into the present. And as a historian also, I will tell you, history is a reflection of the present more than it's a reflection of the past, right? And so those interpretations really hit us at the present. That Russia question goes to an element for the United States as we look forward. Is the answer a, a, a reverse Kissinger or reverse Nixon, right? Is it the idea that ultimately the, the risk of China is something that is going to be perceived common to Russia, to elements of Europe, to elements of the United States that creates that space? Or does current ideology continue to block and prevent that type of evolution? And a final piece I think that isn't necessarily brought up in here, but is an interesting complication is rail gauge. We talk about connectivity and the flow of both people and ideas, and even in the ideas, the flow of tourism and things of that sort through the region. One of the places where Russia has managed to maintain a concrete strength in Central Asia has clearly been in dissuading the Central Asians from allowing China to shift to standard gauge through Central Asia. So you still have that bit of complication left over from 
year as before. I would suggest there's a really interesting third book that could be read in connection with these two. And that's Jacob Greigel's book on great powers and geopolitical change. And Greigel looks at geopolitics in that book from the lens of resources and roots, which in many ways is, the, is both physically and conceptually the way that the Silk Road area is looked at. And he looks at three old ancient empires, right? The Venetians, the Ottomans, and Ming China. And he looks at how changes in technology, changes in roots and resources have a significant impact on the geostrategic space within which these great powers operate. And then their decision-making on how they adapt and adjust to those changes determines their effectiveness or their ineffectiveness. And as we look at the future of how some of these countries around the periphery or how the United States is going to manage um, this in the future, it's an interesting book to put in parallel with the three that we have here. If I can use my prerogative and throw two questions out to our authors before I hand it over to Sebastian, the two that, I, that I'd like to bring up, and, and both of you can throw in answers as you see fit. One is in the complication of Xinjiang for China. As China tries to both tie in civilizational connecting narratives with Islam and Zhenghei and those connections, it's simultaneously trying to isolate Xinjiang from that, similar to what we've seen in Inner Mongolia and now trying to block the Mongolian language, what we've seen in other parts around the periphery. So China has a almost competing set of narratives, an internal set of narratives about the cohesiveness of the Chinese geography, and an external and somewhat internal set of narratives about the connectivity and civilizational connections of China across regions. So that would be one on thinking about how that evolves and, and how China continues to manage, for example, the Middle East, the Central Asians, Turkey in, in their view and, and ideas of pan-Turkic elements. And the other, the other piece or the other complementary question for me here would be to think about, is Central Asia a bridge too far for the United States? And is it in fact, is it potentially a place where, quite frankly, as an area of the world that has in the past been called the graveyard of empires, is it a place where if the United States doesn't necessarily actively intervene, that as China gets pulled further and further in, it finds itself forced to alter the way in which it interacts um, with other countries in the region. It finds itself pulled in the same direction of past powers and having to exert defensive security and military forces. And thus that breaks the Chinese narrative of China as a unique and distinct win-win non-interfering power on the world system. And I think I'll leave it with those two kind of broad thoughts or ideas for y'all uh, right there. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Daniel, Tim, for this great presentations. And thank you, Roger, for this, uh, for this very rich, excellent comments.